KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, Beto can win. Steve Phillips will explain how Democrats can win back the governor's office in Texas. Also, America's Adam spies. David Lindorf will talk about why the real spy, a man named Ted Hall, was never prosecuted by the FBI. And finally, we'll have your Minnesota moment today, the Koch brothers connection. But first, as Joe Biden's first year as president comes to an end, things are looking bad right now in the polls for him and the Democrats. But Harold Meyerson says Democrats can dig themselves out of their current hole. Harold, of course, is editor-at-large of the American Prospect and a contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, today's bad news for Democrats starts with the latest Gallup poll. Tell us about that. Well, Gallup polled on uh, people's ident identification with uh, the two parties at four points during the last year. Uh, at the beginning of last year, just as Joe Biden was becoming president, there were uh, the Democrats and people who lean Democratic had a nine percentage point lead over people who identified as Republicans or Republican leaners by 49 to 40 percent. That margin shrank with each successive quarterly poll. Three quarters of the way for the year, the Democratic lead had shrunk from one point to had shrunk from nine points to one point. Then at the end of the year, after a, a, a fourth quarter highlighted by uh, the return of, of COVID, by uh, uh, inflation and by the uh, obstinance of uh, mansion and cinema, the number of Republican, the number of Americans who identified as Republicans exceeded the number who identified uh, as Democrats by 5%, 47% to 42%. So all in all, a pretty precipitous slide uh, for the Democrats uh, in the course of 2021. In fact, now I speak now as a professor of American history with a PhD in political science. So let me tell you what the scholarly and scientific view is of this. Uh, what, what I have studied and taught for the last 40 years is that uh, political party identification in America is a pretty stable thing, which makes this finding dramatically different from everything uh, we have known. For Basically, Democrats rarely vote for a Republican. Republicans almost never vote for a Democrat. The people who call themselves independent pretty much vote for one party or the other consistently. The number of swing voters has shrunk dramatically over the last decade. Um, and the big changes we saw, for instance, in 2020, with so many people voting for Trump, are actually from new voters who didn't vote before, more than from Democrats who switched. But there have been Democrats to, who switched to Trump in the last four year, five years, just like in there, there have been major realignments. But those are very rare. So all this makes me wonder about a 14-point change in party identification over one year, uh, frankly, makes me wonder if this poll is something of an outlier. Thanks to thanks to 538.com polling, we can see what the other polls are. Uh, one of the best, uh, the Quinnipiac poll, higher rated than the Gallup poll, 
found uh, most recent in the last week, not a five-point lead for Republicans, but essentially a tie between Democrats and Republicans on the generic ballot. And the YouGov poll that came out today, which is rated about the same as the Gallup poll, has the Democrats ahead by four. So who the hell knows? Uh, In any case, Biden's approval ratings are very low right now. There's no question about that. And you say uh, Democrats can dig themselves out of however deep the current hole is. Please explain. Well, what I say is that they can uh, really reduce the depth of the hole. I'm not, (laughs) I I wouldn't bet the mortgage on uh, their getting actually entirely out of the hole. But there are certainly things the Democrats can do uh, that would uh, would help them. Uh, Passing as much of Build Back Better as Joe Manchin will permit uh, would certainly help the Democrats with their base. Uh, there's no question about that. Um, obviously, dealing with uh, COVID uh, requires, among other things, some just plain good fortune uh, for the Democrats. And uh, there are ways in which the Biden administration can attack the flaws in the supply chain, which is driving everyone somewhat crazy, although most of those flaws are so structurally rooted in the kind of economy that four decades or five decades of bad public policy have created, that uh, that's gonna be a longer term task. So it's, it's, it's a challenge, but that doesn't mean that there aren't things that the Democrats concretely can do. And, 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 as for the parts of Build Back Better which don't pass muster with Joe Manchin, many of them are very popular. And that is why Democrats from swing districts in the House, both progressive Democrats and non-progressive Democrats, have suggested over the past week that bring those up separately for a vote. Because if uh, Republicans are not going to vote for reducing drug prices and Democrats do vote for it, that's not a bad issue to ride into the November election. So there is certainly uh, a game plan there. I'm not sure it's enough of a game plan, but some game plan is certainly better than none. So we have, I have heard that politics is the art of the possible. And now is certainly a moment when we have to make some judgments about what is possible and what isn't possible. And that means once again, we ask the question, what does Joe Manchin want? What is possible with Build Back Better this week? There's no definitive answer to that because Joe, Joe Manchin, besides being generally rotten, is also very slippery. Uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to say. At, at times he suggested that he just doesn't want anything, but at other times uh, other members of the Senate said, well, they're talking with him and they think they can get uh, something through. Um, a, uh, a House committee chair who will go unnamed uh, has privately said this week that, look, we have to pass a reconciliation bill anyway for the next budget. There's got to be stuff in there. And uh, uh, what this House chair, who will remain ungendered to preserve anonymity, what this House chair has said is that uh, probably about a $1.5 trillion uh, build back better component would be part of that uh, would be part of that so we shall see and that would be mostly the child care tax credit or that would be something else no that would be something else because mansion does not want the child care tax credit he's made that very clear so that would not be part of it 
What would be part of it, among other things that Manchin has previously liked, would be universal pre-K, um, subsidy for child care, um, some climate legislation, Lord knows what, um, and, and something dealing with health care, but we're not sure which of the particulars he would support there as well. Well, the Democrats are working this week in Congress on voting rights. And let, let's recall that voting rights measures are so popular that Republicans' own polls told them they could not convince voters to oppose them. So really, the filibuster is, is all they've got. This is Jane Mayer's report in The New Yorker a few months ago. And uh, we've talked about this a dozen times. Today, it's going to happen again. The Democrats are probably going to Am I right that they're going to propose a talking filibuster? I, I think they are. Uh, I'm not sure that Manchin and Cinema are even on board with that, but we shall see. Uh, I, I note as we speak uh, on Wednesday favorite, afternoon. Yes, that the my favorite TV station, Turner Classic Movies, <laughs> is screening this evening. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, which created the only real, I think, vivid. Uh, uh, form of a talking filibuster uh, that has ever reached the American public in which uh, Jimmy Stewart, a young Jimmy Stewart, uh, had a very acclaimed performance in, in doing that. So uh, a talking filibuster sadly really won't change very much because it's pretty clear that there'll be enough Republicans uh, who talk. There are more than enough Republicans who talk right now, not that they say anything substantive. And uh, uh, but if that's, uh, you know, what the Democrats can get, uh, I'm sure they will take that, though it, it isn't really worth all that much. And Cory Booker has said that that if, as we assume will happen, the voting rights bills are blocked by filibuster, they will break the bill up into individual pieces and force votes on the various parts of the law to to do what you have suggested get the Republicans on record for opposing popular uh, measures. Uh, do you foresee that happening this week? I don't know if I foresee that happening this week, but I foresee it happening. Uh, and I think the Democrats are all cognizant in terms of forcing Republican votes, as we've been saying, that pretty much all of this stuff has to be done relatively early in the year to create new talking points for the election year. And the, the parts are uh, mail-in voting, uh, universal registration, um, and in uh, some limitations on gerrymandering. What am I leaving out here? Well, let, let, let's look at a couple of those in particular. Uh, mail-in voting traditionally has been the favored form of voting of seniors who are uh, disproportionately white seniors are uh, overrepresented in the Republican base. And so Republicans fiddle around with that at their own peril. Similarly, uh, the American public does not like gerrymandering. It reinforces the image they already have of uh, politicians as self-interested slimeballs as the technical political science <laughs> term. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think bringing those two particulars up would have uh, create a, a really good talking point uh, for the Democrats. And, and you know, it, it, a lot of what's going on in politics is each party trying to define the other as the swamp. Uh, and certainly if you're for gerrymandering uh, and, you know, carving the electorate to mirror your particular politics, 
Um, that's a, that's major swamp. <laughs> that's the major swamp. So so far we've covered the hole in the swamp. Um, <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> uh, there was a and Martin Luther King may have been to the mountaintop, but we are nowhere <laughs> near it. We're somewhere bedded down in a wet hole. <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about what I thought was a really good piece by Ezra Klein that appeared in the New York Times print edition on Sunday, where he described uh, what many of our friends consider to be their political activism. They're very active on Twitter, keeping up with the latest political crisis. They go to Facebook to read the latest clickbait political news stories. Then they go over to YouTube to see a montage of you know, juicy clips of outrageous statements by, by our, our opponents. Um, and then they post, then they, they complain about this to their family and friends and they post nasty remarks on Twitter and on, uh, on Facebook. And uh, Ezra suggests that this is not politics, even though a third of Americans say they spend something like two hours a day doing this sort of thing. Ezra calls it, uh, drawing on another a political writer, political hobbyism. Two hours a day, a third of Americans spend following the news and complaining about the news. Uh, and four out of five of those people, according to Ezra Klein, say that not one minute of that time is spent on real political work. How do you define real political work? What is he talking about here? Well, let, let's remember that the two great waves of progressive political reform in the last hundred years, the New Deal and the Great Society, uh, happened without any social media, uh, <laughs> amazingly enough. It happened due to on-the-ground activism of workers uh, striking in the middle of the 1930s, of civil rights demonstrators sometimes putting their lives on the line uh, in uh, action to get the right to vote and such uh, in the American South, and people uh, supporting them not only on uh, not not on social media, but coming out for demonstrations and organizing politically to affect the vote. Uh, you know that's my idea of political activism. It's it's walking a precinct, it's working a phone bank, uh, it's it's doing the real work of building the kind of organization you need to get political change. And Ezra is very interested in making this all very local. Um, in, instead of contributing to, you know, your your favorite uh, Senate uh, losing Senate candidate, he he points out that Amy McGrath raised ninety million dollars to run against Mitch McConnell last time around, which was a hopeless thing and a waste of time. Um, Ezra's in favor of engaging things like city council races, school board races, uh, you know, that's not quite as exciting as opposing Mitch McConnell. Well, I, I think to the extent that the Republicans have a structural advantage, they don't have many, but to the extent that they have any structural advantages in American politics, it's that they have focused on the local for a long time. And so there are plenty of school boards that are willing to uh, censor uh, teaching uh, the history of American race relations and throwing out books. There are local election officials who may in the next election uh, do everything they can to both suppress the vote and toss out votes that don't go their way. Uh, the, these are 
strata of government that uh, Republicans have paid much more attention to than Democrats uh, at the Democrats' peril. And Ezra is right that Democrats need to focus on this. They still need to focus on Senate races where that race is winnable. Uh, but uh, you don't believe social media when a candidate says my race is winnable. You need some other verification. <laughs> We've only got two or three minutes left here. I just want to go go back to California for a minute, which we talked about last time. Uh, last time we talked a lot about the Democrats' proposal in California to create a universal single-payer uh, health program for all residents of the state. Uh, the governor released his budget. He's not supporting that. He's got a much more limited proposal to expand uh, state health insurance for all of the undoc undocumented, which is a great thing. Right now, undocumented children and undocumented elders are covered. He would cover all adults. This is a lot different from covering all residents. Um, what do you think of this small step as opposed to the, the big thing that Democrats are also taking up? Well, I, I think even advocates of the big thing would say the small step is a, is a positive step. That's not the question. I think Newsom is making a calculation that uh, the uh, whole healthcare industry, insurance companies, hospitals, drug companies, would, would spend a billion dollars easily on a ballot measure to undo uh, un undo uh, any such legislation that passes and has sort of decided that the way to get to where we need to get is uh, has to be incremental enough so that uh, you know those uh, very wealthy interests don't intervene. Uh, they're not going to uh, on the proposals that he has made. Uh, so I think that's where he's at. And I think it's an understandable position, though it's not the one that, uh, you know, progressives need to just genuflect before. I think it requires how we get to universal coverage uh, is, 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 a real, is a real challenge and a real issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, we just need to build support for the kinds of things that Bernie Sanders has been talking about. And once that support hits a certain level, then the Gavin Newsom's of this world will be there. And let's just recall that Bernie has argued for years that although the cost, uh, the number of dollars that universal health single payer would cost is large, it's not as large as what we currently spend with our private uh, system. That's absolutely true. I mean, all of the uh, arguments are in favor of a, a single payer system. Uh, what's not in favor of a single payer system is a political system where money can be so thrown around it, it uh, shifts the verdict. That's, that's the problem here, not the merits of the argument. Well, we've talked about throwing money around. We've talked about the hole and we've talked about the swamp. Our time is up. Harold, thanks once again for <laughs> filling us in today. For dragging us into uh, yucky metaphors. <laughs> okay. Always good to be here, John. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Republican gerrymandering in red states makes it harder to elect Democrats to the House and the state legislatures, but statewide offices are still subject to majority rule. 
And that means Democrats can elect governors in places like Georgia, where Stacey Abrams is running, and also Texas, where Beto O'Rourke is running. Victories there have the potential to bring massive changes to American politics for decades to come. For comment, we turn to Steve Phillips. He wrote the New York Times best-selling book, Brown is the New White, How the Demographic Revolution Has Created a New American Majority. He's host of the Democracy in Color podcast, and he writes for the New York Times, the LA Times, and The Nation, where he's a regular contributor. Steve Phillips, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Well, we've talked in the past here about how Stacey Abrams built the movement in Georgia that elected two Democratic senators last year, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Remind us what kind of work that took. Yeah, it's one of the uh, most important and least appreciated stories of national politics in that, you know, we were, you know, I've been on this journey with Stacey really since 2012 when she began. And so... Stacey understands that the way to transform politics in the country is to organize and mobilize the large number of non-voting people of color. And that changes the composition of the electorate, and that makes it possible to actually win elections, which is really in direct contradiction to much of the conventional wisdom in democratic politics that that grouping is not gettable. And so we have to try to water down our politics to hopefully be able to swing um, some voters in the middle. And there's very little evidence that that works. And most importantly, what Stacey has shown that the mobilization method does work. And so she saw back as early as 2014, when she created New Georgia Project, that Georgians were losing elections by about 200,000 votes on average statewide. But there were 1.1 million non-voting people of color. And so she said, quite simply, I'm going to get these folks registered to vote. And so she began in 2014, steadily, methodically investing and organizing and building up the number of people of color who were registered and who voted. And then that was the cornerstone of her, uh, her gubernatorial campaign, went all over the state, every different county, suffered a lot of different criticism from the, the uh, conventional wisdom folks that she should have been saving her money to run TV ads at the end. But she's like, no, I'm going to create staffing and volunteers and offices all over the state. And so Stacey got more votes when she ran in 2018 than any Democrat who's ever run statewide in the state of Georgia ever, more than Jimmy Carter, more than Obama, more than anybody, then came with a, you know, a whisker of winning just 54,000 votes. But that infrastructure stayed in place and continued to work. And so you had volunteers, organizations, staffing all over the state so that it was able to bring out another massive turnout in 2020 and defeat Trump by 11,000 votes, and then can stay in place again for the runoff in terms of being able to turn out the votes for Warnock and Ossoff to, to win those seats and flip the entire United States Senate and make possible so I talked to Stacey and I was like, so that uh, $10,000 we helped you raise in 2014, you've turned into $3 trillion for the American people? Because everything that's come out of the Senate and out of the Congress can be tied back to that. She says, I like to provide return on investment. <laughs> so this is, this is a decade-long project, not just to turn out the registered voters during the week before the election but to change the whole composition of the electorate. And it's not, not focused on one campaign, but on a long-term engagement. And you think Beto 
can win in Texas uh, next year when he'll be running for governor against the incumbent Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott won re-election in 2018 with 56% of the vote. Doesn't that mean Texas is a red state? The composition of who votes in Texas is that it's a red state. The composition of the population of Texas, it's nowhere near red. It's its actually brown in terms of, and I didn't even fully realize this until the latest census data came out. But whites in Texas are just 39% of the state population. And Latinos are also 39%. African-Americans and Latinos, in terms of eligible voters, are the majority of people in Texas. Beto lost by 200,000 votes in 2018. There were 5 million non-voting people of color within within Texas. So the numbers are actually much more favorable in Texas than they were in Georgia in terms of what Stacey was doing. Stacey had a, you know, it was like, a, again, like you know, 200,000 vote gap and a 1.1 million pool of potential voters. They've got a 200,000 plus gap in Texas, but a 5 million person pool in, in, in Texas. And one of the things I point out in the article too is that it's even, it gets more diverse every day. And so there's a million people of color have turned 18 in Texas since Beto ran in 2018. And again, he lost by 200,000 votes. So the potential and the numbers and the math is really quite enormous, but people are really stuck on that this mindset that Texas is a conservative place and it's a red state and there's no point in contesting it. You've used the concept people of color, but aren't there significant differences between Black and Latino voters in Texas? Isn't that one of the lessons of 2020 when the exit polls showed that 90% of Blacks in Texas voted Democratic, but only 60% of Latinos? Right. So I have a couple of things about that. One of the leading groups in Texas that's done the work that we saw them take place in Georgia is Texas Organizing Project. And one of their leading strategists is woman Crystal Zermeno, is a data genius, basically. And so she flagged in real time in 2020 that Trump was getting out more of his infrequent voters than the Democrats were doing. And so that's the fundamental piece. And then there was a, I just ran these numbers for Hidalgo County on the border in, uh, of Texas. And that was one of the places where Trump did surprisingly well. Yes. But what the incorrect analysis people have been drawing is that, well, all of these Latinos have switched from being Democratic to now actually supporting the Republicans. But all of these analysis, David Shore and other people who keep talking about popularism, you have to square the circle of Biden and the Democrats got more votes than they had previously gotten. Biden got 9,000 more votes in Hidalgo County than Clinton got. So how, if you're, if you're bleeding support and people deflecting, are you, is your vote total going up? But what happened is that Trump got 40,000 more votes than he had gotten in 2016. And so the non-voting sector was much bigger of the, uh, of the, of the conservative non-voters who actually came out. Biden got more votes in Texas than Trump got in Texas in 2016. And so it was a massive turnout function and that core level of analysis is missing. And the other part about this, which is I was tweeted about this recently, we take the racism in the country so for granted and the racism among the Republicans so for granted. So even people say like, oh, well, you know, African-Americans are 80%, you know, Democrat, Republican, and Latinos are only 60%. But why are Latinos even 60%? Why are we so surprised? We're surprised 
because the assumption is that the Republicans are so racist that people of color should be even more against them. But that assumption, I think, has to be more lifted up and put front and center. And ironically, I actually think that's how you get more white votes is when you call out the racism of the Republicans, demand that people take a stand, then that's how we're going to hit the highest numbers of white voters as well. Let's go back to Beto. We've said one of the most important things about Stacey Abrams' strategy was the importance of long-term local face-to-face on-the-ground organizing. How does Beto compare with that? That's what's so in hopeful and encouraging about his candidacy and his approach to politics. So Beto, literally, I think I said in the piece I wrote with the nation that he literally has a roadmap about how to win because he <laughs> got in his car and drove to every single county, and there's 200 plus of them in Texas. And so he showed up everywhere. He found the people who were supportive and be able began to, again, build an organizational infrastructure, attracting those volunteers, connecting them to his operation, working with them to be able to find other people in their areas to turn out turn out the support. That's the formula. And that's his approach to politics is showing up everywhere, working in grassroots mobilization. He's done, he's partnered with Texas Organizing Project, uh, group I was talking about. He turned his own operation into Powered by the People, continuing to do voter registration, mobilized. My nephew has a little teeny tiny, he lives in Houston, Texas, a little teeny tiny radio show. He's a financial analyst and he and his friend does current events pieces. And it was like a really a Facebook radio show or whatever. You know, it's like, like fine. And that's like, Beto called into that. He's like, I want to call into your show. It's like he showed up and shows up everywhere. And it's that approach that is so encouraging in terms of what how he's actually going about his candidacy. And the other thing we're told uh, is that Texas, more than many places, uh, money is a key because it's such a huge state. Greg Abbott spent... They tell us $85 million in 2018. He's already amassed a war chest of $55 million, and it's he's got another year to raise money. How's Beto doing on the money front? Right, and that's the other factor around Beto in particular, so uniquely situated to be able to take on that kind of an operation. So typically, particularly in these southern and southern, southwestern uh, uh, states, the Republicans overwhelm the Democrats with this massive money advantage. They're the ones defending the status quo with which people make so much money. And so, yes, uh, Abbott, Abbott hit those numbers. A similar dynamic terms of what, you know, Stacey Abrams had, had, had faced, right? I mean, I still remember um, when the January 2018 numbers came out. I think Stacey had raised around like $3 million or something like that. And then I was like trying to show that she had some viability. And even then you had doubters and whatnot. Stacey's group, Fair Fight, in 2020, raised $100 million. <laughs> and so she goes into her race with that kind of a funding base. And then Beto, in 2018, he raised $80 million through his Senate race. So he has a national donor network that has proven to be able to go toe-to-toe with an Abbott. And then they raised you know, a significant number of many millions of dollars in their first 24 hours of their campaign. So he has that network, he has that potential. And so the combination of those factors, the underlying demographics, his approach to doing organizing at the local level and mobilizing people and his capacity to generate the resources to fund all of that work is what makes that a very, very winnable race. Steve Phillips wrote about how Beto can win in Texas for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for having me.
Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time to talk about atomic spying and the FBI. The Russians tested their first A-bomb in 1949. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were arrested in 1950 and executed for conspiracy to commit espionage in June 1953. We know now that Julius was a spy, but we also know he did not give the secrets of the A-bomb to the Russians. That was the work of other people. And the FBI knew that. So why did the FBI go after the Rosenbergs instead of the person they knew was the real spy? His name was Ted Hall. He was a brilliant young physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project and gave key atomic secrets to the Russians. The FBI investigated him, but never charged him with a crime. He moved to England in 1962, where he became a distinguished scientist at Cambridge University and died in 1999. He had an older brother who was also a brilliant scientist who worked on rockets. His name was Ed Hall. The FBI was interested in him too, The question has always been why the FBI focused on Julius and Ethel Rosenberg and her brother, David Greenglass, rather than on the real spy, Ted Hall, and his brother, Ed. Now that story has been told in The Nation magazine by Dave Lindorf. He's an independent journalist who writes on the Cold War and on climate change and other issues. He spent six years as a correspondent in China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan for Business Week. And he was the winner of the 2019 Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Journalism. Dave Lindorf, welcome back. Thanks for having me on. Well, first of all, tell us about young Ted Hall and how he got hired by the Manhattan Project. Well, Ted was such a brilliant guy that he actually went to college at 14. He went, his brother, who was 11 years older, uh, when Ted was four, told his parents that uh, he was taking over his bro- younger brother's education, and he did. He had him doing higher algebra, you know, as a grade schooler. He went to Townsend High School, which was this magnet school for geniuses. Ira Gershwin went there. Uh, Felix Frankfurter went there. I mean, there's a lot of very smart people went there. And at any rate, Ted got bored with uh, going to Queens College at 14, and his brother who by then was in the army and stationed in England, said, well, uh, why don't you apply to Harvard? Ted did, and he got admitted as a junior physics major. When he applied, he was 16. And then uh, Oppenheimer wanted to get, uh, you know, they were rushing to get the bomb built and they needed more scientists. So he contacted Van Fleck, Professor Van Fleck, John Van Fleck at Harvard, and said, do you have any like brilliant young guys that we can hire to, to join the effort and help us do this? And he said, well, yeah, we got a few. And there's this one guy that you really need to hire, Ted Hall, who's, who's just absolutely brilliant. So they did. They hired four guys, two uh, graduate students and two undergrads, the youngest being Ted, who when he was actually interviewed, he was still 17. Uh, when he was offered the job, he was 18. He went 
in January uh, by train and went to Los Alamos and, and got there January 28th. And uh, Ted got put on a uh, project helping to refine the implosion device of the plutonium bomb. And how important was the information that Ted Hall uh, gave to the Soviets compared to what David Greenglass gave to Julius Rosenberg? Oh, vastly more important. There were two people who gave almost everything, a roadmap to the plutonium bomb. And one was Klaus Fuchs and the other was Ted. Klaus Fuchs was arrested by the British. He confessed and he was sentenced to... How many years? Four, 14 years. He got Four. off after nine in a spy trade. Ted's material was not as voluminous as what uh, Klaus Fuchs gave. Klaus Fuchs gave a lot of the theoretical stuff, uh, but he didn't actually have the hands-on knowledge of the implosion core, which Ted was actually testing. So he knew exactly what worked. And he gave that information to the Soviets because the Soviets got two separate streams of information about this bizarre plutonium bomb idea. They had the confidence that they weren't getting tricked. And so they decided to go all out with the plutonium bomb and forget about trying to refine uranium and make a uranium bomb. That's a huge project, as the Iranians can tell you. Um, so they uh, focused everything on the plutonium bomb and they made a perfect copy of the Nagasaki bomb because they had the whole roadmap. And it was Ted that gave him that confidence because neither Ted nor Fuchs knew each other, uh, was a spy, and the Russians knew that. So the Russians had the confidence to build their bomb. So the FBI knew about Klaus Fuchs. How did the FBI learn that Ted Hall was a spy? Ted was actually the first spy to be identified by name in the Venona cable decryptions. And he was identified first as Malad, which meant young one, because his courier was his roommate at Harvard, named a guy named Seville Sachs, who was called Star, which is old one, because uh, he was a year older than Ted. Those two were identified. And then because they included Ted's name in one of the decrypts, uh, Hoover assigned a whole bunch of this was in 1950, early 1950, he assigned a whole bunch of offices around the country to find Ted, because Ted had already left Los Alamos by then, and long, long before. He left in uh, the end of 45. So they finally located him at uh, University of Chicago, where he was working on a uh, PhD in biophysics. You know, that's when they put the full press on him. But they very quickly also identified his older brother, Ed, naturally, who turned out to be a major in the Air Force working on a top secret missile engine project at Wright-Patterson Air Base. You know, you just imagine what Hoover thought in 1951. My God, I got two of them. And then it all fell apart. And, I, and that's what I found out why. I first learned about Ted Hall from an important book called Bombshell by Joseph right. Albright and Marcia Kunstel. That was published in <clears throat> 1997. They um, interviewed Ted Hall in England before he died. What did he tell them was his motivation for spying? He said he was hired and took the job because they explained that they needed to get this bomb because they were afraid the Germans were going to get it. This was in January of 1944. But very soon after that, 
towards summer, the Germans were in retreat in Russia, and it was clear that they were going to lose. You know, everybody knew by 19, mid-1944 that it was just a matter of time before Germany was, Germany was going to have to surrender or be defeated. So a lot of the scientists at Los Alamos, including major people like Niels Bohr and uh, Joseph Rotblat and Leo Szilard, and, and even uh, Oppenheimer, were thinking, you know, we really don't need this bomb to be used. You know, Oppenheimer wanted to make it. Some of them wanted to stop. Rotblat quit. A lot of them thought Russia should be in on this. Like Niels Bohr, he thought, bring in the Russians. Ted thought, bring in the Russians, too. And the U.S. didn't want to do it. They were keeping them completely out. So Ted got more and more alarmed and thought, wow, the U.S. coming out of this war with a monopoly on the bomb is a disaster for the world. Uh, and he was right. I mean, clearly we know how the U.S. behaved after the war without having a monopoly. They killed millions in Vietnam, in Korea, and everywhere else. They would have done much worse if they had no opposition from the Russians having the bomb. But that was his motive, was like, get rid of the monopoly. Now we need to talk about the older brother, Ed Hall, you are the first investigative reporter to get hold of Ed Hall's FBI file. That's the focus of your uh, new story in The Nation. Tell us about that FBI file, how you got it, and what the FBI did when they learned about the two brothers. Ted made a tape with his lawyer. Uh, he, the, the British uh, equivalent of William Kunstler is Ben Birnbaum, still alive at 91 or two. He was Ted's lawyer in after 95 when he came out. He had suggested that Ted make a tape explaining what he did and why. When he was asked, why do you think you never got arrested? He said, well, it's possible that they didn't want to uh, you know, ruin my brother's work because the, the, he was like the key missile guy. He designed the Minuteman. And he also made the motors for the Atlas and the Titan. He was the head of the ICM, ICBM development program, Ed was. If the FBI had arrested Ted and McCarthy got a hold of that, it would have proven his theory about communists' infiltration of the military, right? Even though Ed was not a communist, so anyway, I, you know, I saw that and I thought, God, I got to find out what, what happened with Ed, you know. So I applied for the, for the file on the appeal, sent me 103 pages on Ed. And the first thing in the file was a letter from Hoover dated January 6th, 1950, to General Joseph F. Carroll, director of the U.S. Air Force Office of Special Investigations. I looked up Joseph Carroll. It turned out he was he had gotten hired into that job from a position at the FBI as the main uh, person in Hoover's office, the main assistant. He, had, he was an Irish Catholic working class guy in Chicago who worked his way through Loyola Law School and joined the Air Force in, and the, the FBI in 1940. I actually called Joseph Carroll's son, who's a columnist, he's a priest named James Carroll. He said, uh, yeah, I'm an I'm a ordained priest. I'm in the Berrigan branch of the priesthood. <laughs> and, he, and he said, I said, would your father have stood up to Hoover? And he said, my father revered Hoover, but uh, he would have 
not hesitated to stiff arm him if he tried to interfere with the prerogatives of the Air Force. So, you know, that seems to be it. So, so the first letter, Hoover says, I'm writing to tell you that we're investigating an atomic spy named Ted Hall, and I want to inform you that his older brother, Ed, is a major in the Air Force working at a top secret project on rocket engines at Wright-Patterson Air Base. We would like to investigate him at earliest opportunity. So they knew as of January 6, 1950, in the Air Force, that there was this connection. So did he get permission to investigate Ed? Well, not really quickly. They have a letter from Hoover, a second letter, March 27th, where he writes, you said that you're going to conduct your own investigation into whether Ed Hall might be uh, inimical to, his position might be inimical to the interests of the United States. And he said, we, our investigation of Ted Hall has advanced to the point where it's urgently important for us to interview Ed. And he did get permission, but not urgently. Three months later, shortly after that, Ed was promoted to lieutenant colonel and put in, uh, made a co-director of the engine project. And then in 1954, he was made director of the whole ICBM development project. So, you know, obviously the Air Force believed that Ed was not a spy. And obviously they stopped the Ted Hall investigation because Ted was called in by the FBI. Uh, Ted got three hours of, of very intense grilling and threats. He denied everything and they got up and walked out and they said, we want to see you again on Monday. He came in on Monday. He said, I don't have anything more to say to you. And he got up and left again. And that was the last time he was questioned. Both Savvy Sachs and Ed, uh, Ted rather, were taken off of the special file for you know, immediate arrest in a crisis and monitoring, phone taps, mail covers, all that stuff stopped in February of 1952. So obviously Hoover was told, you can't arrest this guy. You can't do anything public about him. And it never leaked out that he was a spy. So we have two amazing brothers. We have the teenage spy who was a prodigy in physics and helped create the plutonium bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. And really did give those secrets to the Russians. And we have his older brother, who was not a spy, but was a brilliant rocket scientist who developed the missiles that could deliver nuclear warheads in an attack yep. on the Soviet Union. We've wondered for a long time, how come the FBI focused on the Rosenbergs? And you have found the answer. The Air Force needed Ed, the older brother, so they couldn't arrest the younger brother, Ted, the real spy. This was really a kind of a turf battle, as you describe it, between the Air Force and the FBI. Meanwhile, yeah. the FBI already had a confession from David Greenglass saying that he had given the secret of the atom bomb to his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg. The Rosenbergs were active communists. So the FBI could put on a big show trial and J. Edgar Hoover could claim that he caught the people who stole the secret of the A-bomb, even though they knew the real guilty party was a free man because they had lost this turf battle with the Air Force. America's nuclear arsenal is back in the news, you know, this month. Remind us uh, what's going on right now. Yeah, every president has to review the U.S. nuclear posture uh, 
and develop a, a plan for how we would use nuclear weapons. And, and so right now, Biden's about to issue it, maybe by February. And um, 700 so far uh, physicists and Nobelists, Nobel laureates, have written a letter to him saying that he needs to act to move forward on denuclearization. And they've proposed that he should cut the U.S. Uh, active warheads to 1,000 from the current 1,500 unilaterally to get things going. And they're saying that he should say that uh, the U.S. will change to a policy of no first use of a nuclear weapon in any crisis. And, and this is what Ted want, you know, wanted. So, I mean, this is really right up his alley. He, he hoped that this would happen. Dave Lindorf's report is titled Brothers Against the Bureau. It appears in the new issue of The Nation magazine. Dave, thanks for this fascinating work, and thanks for talking with us today. Well, thank you for having me on. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, the secret of the Koch brothers' fortune. For that, we turn to Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book, Cokeland. You say the key to the Koch's rise to power, if there is a single one, was Charles buying control of the Pine Bend Refinery south of St. Paul in 1969. I don't think anybody else in 1969 thought that Pine Bend would be the key to becoming a billionaire. Why did Charles want to own it? The, the importance of the Pine Bend refinery cannot be overstated. Yes, Charles Koch is one of his first moves as CEO to purchase it in 1969. And I, I think, you know, the guy has really great business sense and, and he knows an opportunity when he sees it, but I think critically what sets Coke apart is that they think on this horizon of years instead of quarterly earnings. So he saw this asset and he could see the profits that would it would deliver over the next two, five, ten years, and that's why he bought it. But I think the performance of Pine Bend even outstripped anything Charles Coke could have envisioned at the time. And it really tells an important story, not just about America's energy system, but about our, our political economy, if you will. And, and here's the headline about why this one oil refinery, I, it was described to me as the cash cow, the crown jewel. It, it has delivered billions in profits over decades. And why was that? The reasons are really fascinating. The Pine Bend Refinery, which is kind of obscurely hidden up there in, in suburban St. Paul, it refines oil from the tar sands area of Canada. This is high sulfur, quote-unquote, dirty crude oil that not many refineries can process because of its chemical composition. So because not many people can process it, there are just big supplies of this oil piling up up there at the border in Canada. Not many people can buy it. So Coke, as one of the few purchasers, gets this oil really cheap. It refines it. And then it turns around and sells gasoline from that oil into these markets in the upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis, areas like that where gasoline prices are extremely high because there aren't that many refineries up there in that region. So Coke is buying extremely cheap and it's selling really high. But the big question is, why is that sort of bottleneck or that dysfunction in the energy economy allowed to continue? 
We haven't built a new oil refinery in this country since 1977. It's a really uncompetitive sector of our economy. Everybody relies on gasoline to get to work, so it's essentially an energy monopoly. But we haven't built a new oil refinery, strangely enough, in large part because of the Clean Air Act regulations that have created this huge regulatory hurdle to get into the business and that the existing oil refineries have truly exploited and manipulated the clean air laws to keep out any new competitors. So you see how Coke sits on top of these assets that are tremendously profitable and sort of shielded from competition. So Pine Bend had great economic advantages. It also had one economic obstacle to tremendous profits. The Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the OCAW, had organized the Pine Bend Refinery Workers. That was a a good union. It was a time when unions were strong. Minnesota was a union state. What happened to the OCAW in the contract negotiations of 1973? So this is one of the Most important stories in the book, I think. You know, this is right when Charles Koch buys the refinery. He has big plans and big visions, but as he stated, there's a very strong, almost militant labor union standing in his way in the the sense that, you know, you go back to the 1970s, labor unions had a lot of power in this country. They didn't just bargain for higher wages and higher retirement benefits. But they bargained for what we would call workplace rules, which were safety rules, so that a certain employee at the refinery would only work on one machine. That employee would get to know that machine really well, and if it broke, another employee would come fix it. Now, that that introduces inefficiencies into the business, and it's frustrating for owners because you've got these kind of shackles on what you can do. Charles Koch vehemently opposed these kinds of limitations on management control of facilities. He has opposed labor unions from the beginning, and he hired a guy named Bernard Paulson to come into the refinery. And I wouldn't even say take a hard line on contract negotiations. He told the union, Bernard Paulson told me, that it was basically take it or leave it. Charles Koch has got a new way of doing things. You're either on board or you're not. And what resulted was a nine-month-long strike bitter, bitter dispute. Coke was bringing in scab workers. It was bringing in workers via helicopter. They lived in bunker-like conditions. There was industrial sabotage. But Charles Coke never wavered in this fight. And in essence, Charles Coke broke the OCAW. After nine months, they came back to the table. They signed a contract. And I say they were essentially tamed from that point forward. Well, today, Pine Bend still going strong. It's run by something called Flint Hills Resources, which is, I guess, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. But if you look up the Flint Hills website, it says their purpose is safeguarding the environment. It's all about ducks and forests. It's all about the Pine Bend Bluffs natural area, known for its, I quote, its stunning views of the upper Mississippi River Basin and its critical role in providing wildlife habitat. And Flint Hills Resources sponsors the Flint Hills Family Festival in St. Paul, which they describe as an annual multi-day event featuring performances, free activities, art making, and more. Families, I'm quoting, are 
swept away on adventures that spark imagination and inspire exploration, close quote. That doesn't seem to be the way that Charles Koch got control of the refinery in Pine Bend. You know, there's always more to the story. Let's fast forward to the year 1996, which actually plays a big role in why this facility is called Flint Hills Resources instead of Koch Refining. You know, at that time, there was a huge pollution problem at this refinery. Yeah. The machinery was producing toxic ammonia levels that were way outside of the permit levels. And Coke managers, instead of shutting down the refinery to fix the problem, they chose to flush this ammonia-laden water out into the nearby wetlands and illegally pollute the wetlands. And, you know, the book tells the story of this one woman at the refinery who tried to get them to stop. She was an environmental engineer who tried to stand up to her bosses and get them to stop. And she was really marginalized and steamrolled. And I think that the reason for that is it's this corporate culture of everybody moving in lockstep. You know, the old labor unions created a counterbalance. But once that was wiped away, the, the sort of voices who got up and, and tried to speak against the authority, they're, they're not listened to as much. And anyway, you know, the federal authorities and the state authorities discovered this criminal wrongdoing at Pine Bend, and there was a huge record-breaking fine that was imposed on Coke for that. And it was after that very high-profile criminal action that they changed the name to Flint Hills Resources and, and kind of moved past the bad baggage that was locally attached to that word, you know, Coke refining. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. Today we featured Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book, Cokeland. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA.